Gamar Chatima Tova, everyone. I want to welcome you from both far and wide away, from very, very distant places from Toronto to just around the corner for this very special Kol Nidre that is absent of many bodies in the sanctuary, but we know that in heart and mind and soul that you're very much present with all of us here on this evening. I want to begin with a question because truthfully, the best Jewish conversations always begin with a question. The question for this evening is, why is this night different from all other nights? Now, for nearly 75 years of existence, Beth Shalom has never had an empty sanctuary on Kol Nidre evening. Never. But that's not what makes this evening truly different. What does is the fact of a large number of Jews who seldom throughout a year would step into a shul, but on Kol Nidre night, it would be unthinkable for them not to be here. Tonight, we can't be here, but our wishes to be here mean something too. That wish is seen in much of what we'll do in this evening. We wear white, which speaks of the purity that lives within the people of Israel, the Torahs that will be taken out, which represent the presence of God, the ark that is left open, and as we stand for the entire Kol Nidre prayer, because the open ark represents the gates of heaven being open to your prayers. On Kunidre night, we believe that heaven and earth gather. Now, the story of this evening and of gatherings is dramatic. We know, for example, that Al Jolson sang about this in 1927 to the stone heart of a cantor who was his father. And then Neil Diamond did the very same in the remake of The Jazz Singer. The composer, Mac Bruch, used the music of Kol Nidre in a celebrated adagio in 1881. And Beethoven actually used the music of Kol Nidre for his sixth movement of his String Quartet 131. Even Perry Como and Johnny Mathis in the 1950s did a rendition of Kol Nidre. But the prayer of Kol Nidre has a twisted history. For centuries after the prayer was written, lots of rabbinic leaders didn't like it. They disagreed with what it was actually saying, as in how does a prayer unwind the promise that you've already made? Kol Nidre originally spoke in the past tense. In the 12th century, a French rabbi named Meir ben Shmuel made it more logical. He made the Kol Nidre prayer set into the future tense. And maybe that's why it's so gripping. It's a lot like us thinking about the past, but hoping for tomorrow, where we live with yesterday and hope for the next. But from medieval rabbis to Neil Diamond, the truest story of Kol Nidre drama is seen in the moment that it went from an obscure prayer to a signature moment. To find that we have to go back 600 years. We have to go to Spain, to the very end of the 14th century. We have to go to what was then the most prosperous Jewish community in human history of Jews in business, academics and government, and when it would all come to an end. The Spanish Roman Catholic Church wanted to purify Spain, and they put its large Jewish community to a test of conversion, death or exile. 160,000 of those Jews would leave, and the remarkable Jewish communities of Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria would come into being because those Spanish Jews who traveled over the Iberian Peninsula for religious freedom. Others would go to Amsterdam, 
And those Spanish Jews from Amsterdam would eventually become the very first Jews who would settle in New York City, then known as New Amsterdam. But back home in Spain, what was seen as a success quickly turned sour. The Church of Spain had a Jewish problem and they were determined to solve it. Now it was time for the consequences. They held an inquisition and any Jew suspected would be put to death if found insincere of their conversion. Those converted Jews were called Moranos, pig in Spanish, because they were known not to eat pig. Rumors were that they went into their ba basements on Friday afternoons as the sun was setting to light candles, that they held Passover seders in secret locked rooms. And on this night, on Kol Nidre, they would come out of their basements and out of their secret rooms and would walk bravely into synagogues to hear these words. By the decree of the heavenly court, we now have permission to pray with those who have sinned against our community. All that has been promised and vowed and committed, let it now be null and void. And now you hear those words too which in some way is something of a miracle too. Because you're the byproduct of people who refuse to let go, to give up on what we see before us now, Torah, faith, and community. It is said that the longest burning fire on earth is in Southeast Australia. It's believed to have been started by a lightning strike about a thousand years ago and is slowly eating away at a buried coal deposit. But they are wrong. That the longest burning fire in human history, in the history of the earth, is right here. Because the rabbis of tradition said that the soul is like a fire, lit from one generation to another. And the words that we have sung and will sing were also on their lips who have come before us. And this fire that caught that caught souls in a desert some 3,500 years ago, that fire now is held inside of you, not for you to hold, but by giving it to another, we give it to ourselves. Now my year, like yours, was supposed to have looked very different. Armed with a sabbatical in hand, Lisa and I went to Berlin where I taught rabbinical students for two months. We came back to Toronto and then we were supposed to head for Israel in March. We got to Israel in March, but as you can well imagine, we didn't stay there for very long. Since that time, coming back to Toronto, Israel has changed and seen very much. Corona's first wave came and it exposed Israel's great strength in facing a threat, and it tamed the coronavirus to the envy of the world. A few months later, the coronavirus' the second wave came, and expose Israel's great weakness, that they're great with short-term threats, not so great with the patience needed for the long-term ones. The other earth-rattling change was its peace agreement with the UAE, Bahrain, and soon to come, Oman, Chad, and Saudi Arabia for sure. You know, as a child, I have a distinct memory of staying in the car as it lined up on the street down from the gas station. 
Now, this was 1973. And the Arab oil embargo against any country supporting Israel was just launched. And it targeted, in particular, the United States. In New York, because of the sheer number of cars, they instituted even odd days that were based on the last number of your license plate of which car could go, in fact, and fill up. I remember more than once having my parents' car pull up to the gas station and being told that there was no more gas for the day. That oil embargo was initiated, but weeks after the Yom Kippur War, that the Arabs launched as a surprise attack on Israel. On this evening, assuming that with most Jews in synagogue, that they would be their most vulnerable. Well, the Arabs were right, and they were wrong. We were most vulnerable, but only then. Once Israel mobilized and figured out how to circumvent the devastating Russian-supplied anti-tank weapons that the Egyptians and Syrians were using to absolutely devastate the Israeli tanks, once they figured out how to circumvent that, it was only a matter of time. In weeks, Israeli troops would cross into Egypt following a brilliant counterattack by Ariel Sharon, and they were on their way to Cairo. The same was true in Syria. Israeli troops were 25 kilometers outside of Damascus before the war was to be called off. By then, the Arabs realized that Israel was not going to be destroyed by conventional warfare. They had worked at that over 25 years in four wars. So they turned their eyes to waging unconventional warfare, better known to us as terrorism. For the next 25 years, Israel's existence would be defined as a battle against it. The first Lebanon war was a war actually against the PLO, a terrorist organization. Then in 1988, the first Intifada, the Israeli, the Palestinian uprising, followed by quiet in the Oslo peace agreements, and then the devastating second Intifada with the suicide bombers who blew themselves up in public buses and malls and beaches and restaurants and dance clubs and markets. All in all, it's been 57 years of war. And for those of you who are keeping count, that's a lot of war. The Arabs long thought that with enough time and effort and money that Israel could be crushed, driving the Jews into the sea, or at the very least, that Israelis would become citizens of an Arab country where Israel had once stood. And now, 57 years later, they've come to realize how long they've been. Now, I want to share a secret with you. It's a secret that I've learned of having lived in Israel over seven years, having served, have maintaining deep connections there, going back as often as possible. Here's the secret. Israelis can and will resist any threat brought against them. Attack them. They'll fight back with a determination and cunning that will strip away any advantage you thought you may have had. Boycott them, they'll engineer and innovate their way to the point that you won't be able to live without them. Terrorize them, they will fight and defend, but you will not turn their country into the nightmare that you come from. But here's the one thing Israelis can't resist. A hug. 
Finally, after all these years, yes, it has helped that Iran is a regional threat, as is Turkey. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, but it's more than that. Israel has shown itself to be indispensable. It won't be erased from the map because Israel cannot be erased from the map. From medicine to science to technology, poetry and music, this country of nine million continues to remind us that numbers do not equal value and size does not equal potential. Finally, after all these years, the Arabs have realized that Israel is not disappearing and the way to win over Israel and Jews is not with a gun, but now with a hug. There is a story told that when Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, remember, Egypt was the largest and most powerful Arab country for decades, and Anwar Sadat was the president of that country. When he landed in Israel to make peace in the 1970s, the first Arab leader to ever do so. Tall and immaculately groomed, Sadat stood there at the entrance of the plane banking in the trumpets and applause. In slow motion, he descends from the plane, accompanied by the Israeli chief of protocol, who introduces him to the president of the state of Israel and the prime minister of the state of Israel. And as all this unfolds, Golda Meir stands next to Yitzhak Rabin and says, now he comes? Couldn't he have come before the Yom Kippur War and spared all of those lives? Sadat then makes his way down the row and reaches Ariel Sharon. And he says to him, ah, here you are. You know, I chased you through the desert, he said. No need for that, Sharon said. I'm glad to have you here. Sadat moves further down the line and comes to Moshe Dayan. And he says to him, don't worry, Moshe. It'll all be all right. He then makes his way to General Matagor, who led the invasion into Jordan that secured the old city of Jerusalem. And Sadat said to him, you see, General, I wasn't bluffing. I came. And now Sadat stands face to face with Godemi Ir. And they look at each other. He half bows and he takes her hand into his. And he says to her, you know, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. And Golda looks at him and says, I've been waiting for you for a long time too. So have we. Unlike in so many years past, this evening here, there is no shrill, fear-filled talk about Israel. Now, I have no doubt that there will continue to be challenge and heartache, of course. This is a Jewish country, and our history is soaked with it. But maybe, just maybe, we can not only believe this year will be one that will be sweet and good for us and the people of Israel, I think this year we know it too. Gamar Khatimatova, a sweet, safe, and joyous year for us all.